Okay. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Let's get this going. I know you're all chatty Kathy, but we're going to get in the Bible. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Matthew. So open up to Matthew chapter 19. If you are uh, new, welcome. My name is Sam, and I have the joy of getting to preach a lot. Um, we go straight through books of the Bible, and right now we're in the book of Matthew. We will continue to go through the book of Matthew. There will not be a special Easter sermon. It will be wherever we are in Matthew, and trust God's providence has put us there. But give you a little clue, every sermon is about the same thing, Jesus. So there's absolutely no variation in that, um, but we are in Matthew chapter 19 today, and we will be in verse 16 and finish the chapter, and then in Matthew 20 next week. We'll be close to aligning with Easter, sort of. Uh, by the time you get to Matthew 21, we that is the triumphal entry, uh, which is obviously Palm Sunday, which I think is two Sundays away. Uh, the back half or back third of the book of Matthew is about Jesus in Jerusalem. And so we're at a time as we're going through the story that Matthew presents uh, where he's just about to go into Jerusalem. So, Matthew 19, verses 16 to 30. Here's what God's Word says. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do? to have eternal life. And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for My name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's Word. Let me pray so I don't mess it up. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. It is a grace. You, Father, have come down and You have spoken to us Words that can change us from the inside out. And so I pray that, Holy Spirit, You will do Your work today in these words. That You will lift the veils from our hearts. And You will speak the words that You need to speak, whether those be words of conviction or comfort. When all is said and done, Father, please direct all of our eyes towards the only place where we can find hope, which is the resurrection and crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Now last week we talked a lot about kids. A couple verses. And we saw that the kingdom of heaven belonged to children, Jesus said. Well, this week we see that not everyone receives Jesus like a child and many reject Him. And this story, the back half of 19 here, is, is not a success story. The story of the rich young ruler, I call him a ruler because in Luke they call him a ruler. Here they call him a man with many possessions, so he's a rich young ruler. It's not a success story. It doesn't end with a thankful disciple 
who's ready to surrender his life. The story ends with a really sorrowful, rich dude who is enslaved to his stuff. And just as anyone maybe last week who's not a parent may have been tempted to dismiss a sermon about kids, those who do not consider themselves rich will be tempted to dismiss these words to this rich young ruler. Though we live in one of the wealthiest states of one of the wealthiest nations in the history of the world, few of us believe we're actually rich, which is completely wrong. We're all very wealthy, comparatively speaking, though we always know there's someone more wealthier than us. But the truth is, Jesus is addressing in Matthew chapter 19 things like marriage and children and money or possessions, not to make us better spouses, though I certainly think he hopes for that, not to primarily make us better parents or even better stewards of our stuff. He's trying to address a particular problem in our hearts that's often made manifest in all those situations. Here, Jesus is challenging some really fundamental questions about discipleship. Namely this, how does anyone become a disciple? How does anyone become a Christian? And what does it actually mean to live as a Christian? This passage um, surprised me because I've read this passage many times and I found it to be one of, if not the most gospel-rich passage in Matthew. It's not just about money, as we'll see. But the interesting thing is, and we always have to look at the story in the context of the larger picture or the larger story, whether it be chapter in the book and then the whole story of God, but it couldn't be any more different than the previous story we read last week. Children, as we saw, uh, were being brought to Jesus because infants aren't going to bring themselves to Jesus. As those infants come to Jesus, they bring absolutely nothing but drool and, and you know cooing. And they are the ones whom Jesus says the kingdom belongs to, and they're the ones who receive a blessing and a prayer and a touch from Jesus. Then you have the rich young ruler that we see in this passage who brings himself to Jesus. He comes with a resume of good works. And he rejects Jesus' invitation. And the disciples' reaction to these different people couldn't be any more different. We saw last week as moms and dads bring their babies and their, their kids to Jesus, they're viewed as unimportant, kind of interruptions in the way, Jesus is too busy, and they rebuke them. Like, leave Jesus alone. And yet, when the rich young ruler comes up, they do nothing to hinder his way to Jesus. Oh, please. Clearly, you're important. Clearly, you're of means. You should talk to Jesus. Don't let us stop you. More than likely, the different responses in this, in this particular response to the rich man is a result of their cultural convictions that are rooted somewhat in the Old Testament that believe that prosperity and position was a blessing from the Lord. Jesus, or I say, the Old Testament declares like obedience equaled blessing. And so they're seeing this guy who is respected. He's got influence and position. He has, what we'll find out, religion and morality. And he's got wealth. It's like, this guy's blessed. This guy's anointed. This guy has been prospered by the Lord. If anyone has a ticket to heaven, this guy must. He must be a citizen of the kingdom. Please talk to Jesus. Yet, what I find totally interesting is that this man comes to Jesus to ask one of the most important questions about life, namely life after death. Because he himself isn't so sure he's blessed. 
He's uncertain. He asks Jesus, he says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And the truth is, as we think about questions about what happens after we die and, and how do I get into heaven, these are questions that I believe everyone who is ever born at some point in their life is going to ask. And that's because Ecclesiastes 3 says that God has put eternity into man's hearts. No matter what people say, everyone knows there's something else beyond this world. And so in our different ways, we always like, what happens? And we sense there's a good place and a bad place. How do I get to the good place? How do I get into heaven? Because we know how this story ends, we might be tempted to question this man's sincerity, but I think he's asking the same question that all of us would ask at some point. And maybe many of us are asking now and we're not really sure of the answer. So I want you to be sure of the answer by the time we leave today. Unfortunately, he asked the wrong question or perhaps the right question the wrong way. He doesn't ask, how does one enter into eternal life? Or how does one get into heaven? On the contrary, he asks what he must do to get into heaven. We're always thinking about what we have to do. I think the greatest hindrance to eternal life is a heart that wants to do for Jesus versus a heart that wants to be with Jesus. The greatest hindrance to eternal life is a heart that wants to do for Jesus versus a heart that wants to be with Jesus. He approaches eternal life as if it's real estate to be purchased. Or something to be possessed by his own effort or merit or money. You just kind of sense like, okay Lord, how much, how much is it going to cost me? I want one. Here's the checkbook. Just name your price. He views eternal life like a final acquisition, an extra blessing to enhance his already awesome kingdom. But what Jesus is going to reveal to him and to all of us, and I say all of us because whenever we read stories about Jesus, we're tempted to think we're Jesus in the story, which is a mistake. Then we're tempted to think of what the you know the best case scenario person other than Jesus is in there. No. We are the red-shirted Star Trek guy that's going to die. We are the rich man here. Okay, This is us. The, the worst person in the story. Where our hearts tend to wander. Jesus is going to reveal that the kingdom of heaven is not an extra blessing upon your already awesome kingdom. That it's actually an all-encompassing surrender of that kingdom that right now you find so valuable. But before he does that, Jesus answers his question. The man had asked, what good deed must he do? And before he actually answers it, he asks him a question. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? In Luke, possibly in Mark as well, the man approaches and says, good teacher. And he's like, why are you calling me good? There's only one who is good, and that is God. It's really a rhetorical question. What's a rhetorical question? A rhetorical question is one where the answer is obvious. And so he's asking the guy, why, why are you talking about good? Why would you ever be talking about doing a good thing? This man should know that there's only two things in this world. Creation and Creator. And one is bad, and one is good. He says, or the Bible says in Psalm 14, which is actually quoted by Paul in Romans 3, something that may shock you, it may be familiar to you, but I think it's something that we need to remind ourselves of constantly. And that is this. It says, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. None who does good. Let's continue. The Lord looks down from the heaven on the children of man to see if there are any 
Are there any who understand who seek after God? Are there any who look for God? Are there any who are seeking anyone who understands? Verse 3 says, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none in God's eyes who's looking down. He sees everything, every heart, every person. There's none who does good. Not even one. Oh, there's got to be one. There's none. Not even one who does good. In essence, Jesus basically, by asking Him that rhetorical question, has answered His question before He actually does answer it. So there's a couple things I want you to get out of today and reminding. Here's one. No amount of your goodness will get you into heaven. No amount of your goodness will get you into heaven because no amount of your goodness is actually good. Whatever you think is good about your love or your humility or your compassion or your service, let me tell you that it is all tainted with sin. You may not be Adolf Hitler, but your love still falls short of God's standard. Your compassion still falls short of God's standard. Your service still falls short of God's standard. We all fall short of God's standard. Men can do no good. Jesus could have stopped there. But He proceeds to answer His question. Which feels like He just said, you can't do good. Okay, but then He gives him an answer. And his answer is, as John Calvin says, legal. In other words, he's giving him a technical answer to a very bad question. In other words, where is goodness found? How do you get goodness? He says, in Jesus' words, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Obey the commandments. And Jesus' answer is, is probably too unbelievable for the skeptic and probably too concrete for those who are spiritually mystical, right? Goodness, quite simply, is found in obedience to God's commands. If you want to be good, obey God's commands. Okay. Here's a newsflash. We suck at obeying His commands. All of us. We can't do it! Like Jesus said something He can't do. But He's going to argue otherwise. Jesus basically says, look, in order to enter into heaven, you must perfectly satisfy My law. Perfectly. Or, spoiler alert, right? have it perfectly satisfied for you by someone else. You must perfectly satisfy God's law or have it perfectly satisfied for you by someone else who has to be perfect. But much like the Pharisees who misuse God's law like a morality checklist, right? Do you remember that back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7? He's talking to some Pharisees. And the Pharisees are like, we didn't commit adultery. Check that one. We haven't murdered. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. You have not committed adultery, but have you lusted? Well, like in the last five minutes, you know. I haven't murdered anybody. No, no, you haven't murdered anybody. That's an easy check, but have you hated anybody? Because that's the exact same as murder. You are a lawbreaker. This man also assumes he succeeded in obedience. But to be sure, he asked Jesus, okay, you said I have to obey the commandments. Which ones? There's quite a few. Now, there are lots of things. I always am amazed sometimes by the things Jesus could have said that he doesn't. Like he could have just like unleashed here, I feel like. Like, are you kidding me? But he shows. Incredible patience and grace 
And he answers the question. Which ones? He basically recites the second half of we'll call the second table of the Ten Commandments. The sixth and seventh and eighth and ninth commandments. And instead of the tenth commandment, which he drops off, right? Thou not shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not lie. And then instead of the tenth commandment, he says a quote from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the second half of the Ten Commandments are a lot different than the first half. The first half of the Ten Commandments are difficult to make a checklist by. If the first commandment, which it is, thou shalt have no other gods before me, it's not like you can prove that. But if someone has adultery, like, oh, I haven't done that. So he has that checklist in his mind and he goes down it. Though it might be difficult to check off loving your neighbor, what does that look like? That seems kind of broad. But ironically, the tenth commandment he leaves off is you shall not covet. Specifically, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Coveting, simply defined, is just an unhealthy desire for possessions that you don't have. Rooted in a sense of discontent. And so you look at what everyone else has and you want it. You want more. Always wanting more. And that's the one this man struggles with the most. And surprisingly, he doesn't pick up on Jesus' omission. And the man's first response to what Jesus says is, Somewhat surprising, the second response is incredibly revealing. First he says, well, all these I've kept. I've murdered, I've committed adultery, I've lied, honored my mom and dad, loved my neighbor most of the time. His answer is pretty surprising because he seems pretty unaware that he's sinful and he thinks pretty highly of himself. But what is most revealing is his next statement. And this is, I think, the heart of the whole passage. He asks, after completing his checklist, well, what do I still lack? What am I missing? All of his respect and influence and position, all of his obedience that he just laid out like I've been good. I've, I've followed the law. All of his riches that he has and the wealth that he has has not provided him any sense of assurance that he's saved. He lives wondering, what can I do to be sure? This is because the commands of God do not create goodness. They point to it. The law of God does not give men eternal life as much as it directs men to God for eternal life. See, the law was never designed as a checklist. And that's why I think this man actually feels like he hasn't made it was never designed as a checklist. It was never designed to, to create goodness and make righteous. It was never designed really to save at all. The Bible is really clear about this, which may surprise many of us who think we're good, who think we're moral, think we're, we got the checklist figured out. Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No human being will be made righteous in the eyes of God through your obedience to the law. Romans 3.28 For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Galatians 2.16 Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Why is it we struggle with this? 
We actually believe that we can save ourselves through our goodness. When the Bible says, you can't. No one is going to be saved by the works of the law. And yet, Jesus says, obey my commandments. Are you lying? Are you wrong? Here's what it means. I do believe the road of life is the road of God's commandments. But the way to get on that road is through Christ. And the way to continue to walk on that road is in Christ. And the way to stay on that road is by Christ. Let me help you understand something. There is no assurance of your salvation based on your obedience. There is no assurance of salvation based on your imperfect obedience. You will always ask the question, what do I still lack? Because you will always lack something. I, I'll just speak for myself because I know maybe you're all different. There's the southern in me that I'm not southern at all, but it sounded good to say. I don't possess goodness. Cat's out of the bag, right? I don't possess goodness. I cannot create goodness. I don't even like goodness most of the time. Okay? There you go. I'm a jerk a lot of the time. I'm sinful in thought and deed a lot of the time. I know I cannot create goodness. I know it. Everyone else knows, right? That's my kids and my wife. They know. I have no assurance in my goodness. I have no assurance in my obedience. I am scared to death if I'm saved based off what I do. My only assurance that I am saved comes in trusting in Jesus' perfect obedience. Now, a lot of us will say, I believe that. That's right. That's right. You're a liar. Let me show you why. Ready? And I've, I've said this before, and I keep going back to it. In the quietness of your home, when you're all by yourself, which literally, figuratively, right? You're just thinking about your salvation. You're thinking about your relationship with God. You're thinking about the answer to that question when someone says, how's your walk? Right? You hate that question. If your mind goes to you, if your mind goes to the good you've done or the bad you've done, you don't believe the Gospel. Because your mind should go to what Jesus has. That's the only place there's assurance. What Jesus has done. That's the core of the Gospel. That's the core of Christianity. I am not saved by my goodness and I am not condemned necessarily for my badness because I trust in Jesus' goodness and the badness that He paid the penalty for. But we struggle to believe that. This guy is us. He refused to admit that he's bad. He refuses to come face to face. He actually believes he can do something. He asked Jesus, what do I... I've done all this stuff. I'm, I've done the good things. I've checked. What do I have left to do? And the thing about it is that we'll look at this rich man and go, oh man, what an idiot, right? We'll just condemn him. What I love about Mark chapter 10, it's the same story. There's a verse in there that's not recorded in Matthew. And it's Jesus' response. It says, and Jesus looking at him loved him. And I want you to know that even if you're convinced, even subconsciously, that you might be good, that maybe your good works matter in some way, Jesus still loves. He loves this rich man who is totally lost. And he loves him because he knows him. And he sees him for what he is. See, the world sees a man who is respected and religious and rich 
But Jesus sees a man who is very lost, very broken, and very enslaved to a prison that he probably doesn't even see himself. So he tells him, out of love, here's what you can do to be mature, to be perfect, to find life. He says, sell and give everything you have away. And then follow me. I think it's important to see that because again, our flesh just convinces us, I just have to do this one thing. I'm just going to do this big deed and then I'll be like, no, it's sell it and follow. It's not just a moment. It's not just a decision. It's not just praying a prayer one day. It's a, it's a, seri- it's, it's a moment that begins a series of moments every day, all the time. It's a way of living as a disciple, not just deciding to become a disciple because you did some big thing. He tells him to give it all away. And I think, again, it's noteworthy. He doesn't say, give it to me, give it to the church, give it to the poor. Jesus doesn't need a big deed or a big donation, though I'm sure He's prepared with His Roman checkbook to write it. He's calling for a big surrender of something that has become too important to Him. And He calls Him to give it to those in the context of Matthew 19 who are unimportant in the world. He's inviting him to receive life by surrendering his. Surrendering the very thing that he believes brings him life. He wants him really to surrender the belief that he can do anything to save himself. And his call to surrender is not just like, you know, be poor and move on. It's like, it's an invitation to be with him. We always look at the cost of what it's going to be, not the benefit of what it's going to be. Jesus is not just like, hey, sell everything, see you later. He's like, sell it all, give it all away, then come with me, be with me. Now, I do not believe this passage is a call for all Christians to give away everything and live a life of poverty, though many have used this text for that. Jesus does not command all of us to give everything to the poor, but I will say He could call any of us to do just that. He doesn't call all of us to give it all away to the poor, but He could call you to do that. One commentator wrote that Jesus did not command all His followers to sell all their possessions. That fact gives comfort only to the kinds of people to whom he would have issued such a command. Oh, good, I don't have to sell everything. Praise God. You should be worried. You should be worried. Because he probably would have given you that command. But we all have something. For some people, go, money's no big deal to me. I'll write a check right now, whatever. I give to the poor all kinds of money. I give away half my wealth. Fantastic. The question, though, for you who money is not that big a deal, possessions are not captivating your heart, what might Jesus call you to surrender? What is it that thing you can't imagine life without? What is it you fear losing most? Because the truth is, whatever you are least willing to surrender, whatever that thing or that person or that position, that thing you're least willing to surrender, the most difficult thing to surrender, that is what you are most apt to idolize. And it's not going to be a bad thing. It's going to be a very good thing. When the young man heard of Jesus, he's like, I, Jesus, like, he is the Jedi jujitsu ninja of questions, right? He's just like, slices, right? Go sell everything. Oh, it just hit him. I don't know what it would be for we I asked my kids that. What would it be? And one of my kids was like, you know, regard from other people. I'm like, dang, that's pretty good. One kid was like athletics. I'm like, really? Wow. I'd ask myself whether it was my job as a pastor. Would that be it? Oh, Jesus would never ask you to give up that because that's for His glory. Are you joking me? If it 
you know how many pastors pastor in such a way that it actually draws them away from God? So I'm, my flesh, man, it can do all kinds of stuff. So but what is it? The thing that whoosh, so he, he hits the thing on this guy. It says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He had a lot of stuff. In his wealth, this man had found something, though. It wasn't money. Money brought him security. Money and possessions brought him meaning. Money and possessions brought him joy. Money and possessions brought him hope more than Jesus. In fact, money and possessions were his Savior. What does that mean? Well, it means this. He had a hell created in his mind. And hell for him was poverty. For some of you, hell might be loneliness, and so you'll make an idol out of a person to get out of it. For some of you, it's money. For some of you, it's power, and so you'll make a career your salvation, because I can't imagine not having a position or a certain lifestyle. We do it with all kinds of stuff, and most of the things are good. This was his Savior. Before he violated the Tenth Commandment, which was coveting, he violated the first, Luther would say. And the first was, you'll have no other gods before me. You realize things like lying? We don't lie until we've made an idol out of something that we're trying to impress. I lie to a person because I want them to think better of me because they're more important than actually obeying God. Do we understand that? The first command is always the first one broken before we sin at all. We put something else in the place of God. This man's put his possessions. You might put something else. Jesus and his disciples watch this guy as they reject life with him for his stuff. And he says something that should sober all of us. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Camel was the biggest animal they had. Eye of a needle was the smallest hole he could think of. Some scholars talk about how there was a gate in Jerusalem and all this. I don't believe that. I think Jesus metaphorically making a picture here to say this. It's near impossible. It is impossible for a rich man like this to enter the kingdom of heaven. He is not saying wealth is evil, but he is saying wealth is incredibly dangerous. It does something to our hearts unlike anything else. Why do I think that? Well, he didn't say it's impossible for a drunkard to enter the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say it's impossible for an adulterer to enter the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say a lot of things he could have said. He said it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That should, that fact, especially living in America, right? America, where most of us believe, if we're honest, which we're not, but if we're honest, a little more money will get me out of this problem. If I had a little bit more, I could help someone else. We'll make it sound really noble. I could help somebody get out of their problem. A little more money, though, is, is would be helpful. A little richer. What this should caution us to is that we should actually be motivated to avoid wealth. To be intentional about not loving it in order to protect our hearts from the idolatry that comes from it. As I said, no one ever considered themselves wealthy, or greedy for that matter. Very few of us believe that we're actually rich. But those of us who do, I think we should ask ourselves a little bit, is my elevation, this thing that's important to me, and you could put wealth there, you could put family there, we idolize our families? Oh yeah, we do. You can put your job there, whatever. Ask yourself this. Is that thing that you have convinced yourself is so important, its position in your life, is it drawing you closer to God or taking you further away? Is it drawing you closer to God's people or taking you further away? Is it making you more on mission or taking you further away? Because if it's taking you further away in any of those three things, it is an idol. And I don't care how good it is. When the disciples heard Jesus say the statement, it's impossible for a rich man in the kingdom of heaven, 
says they were greatly astonished. And what do they ask? <laughs> Who then can be saved? Right? Because what's their view? Their view is like, dude, this guy's got it all and he has it from the Lord. He's got respect. He's got religion. He's got wealth. I mean, if anybody is a candidate for eternal life, this dude made it. He's like, it's impossible for that kind of guy to get into heaven. <laughs> what? But that's very consistent with what Jesus has said already. Back in Matthew 5, he told as he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Guys devoted to memorizing the Bible. Like, unless your righteousness exceeds these guys, whose job it is to be good, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Or, in Matthew 7, the scariest passage in the New Testament, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do mighty works, good things for you. And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Please know, it is my responsibility to tell you that no amount of your moral goodness and no amount of your great good works are going to save you. That teaching that Jesus says, it should convict us. It certainly condemns us. But it should compel us to the cross. It's not like Jesus just said, you suck, and walked away. He gives us, like, there's hope. He compels us to the cross. Basically, He knocks out every other option. He's like, the cross is all you got. And he says, with man, this blank is impossible. Okay, what is, what is this? With man, this is impossible. So let me fill in the blank for you. What this is. With man, obedience is impossible. With man, goodness, impossible. With man, salvation, impossible. Seeing a guy who has everything he should have, But with God, all things, including my obedience and my goodness and my salvation, is possible and only with God. How does this happen? If I'm really that bad and my work counts for nothing, how, what am I going to do? By His perfect Obedient life of 33 years. Christ earned the blessings of God. And by His death on the cross, He experienced the curse of disobedience. For those who are in Christ, for those who deny their goodness, their good works, and whatever they might try to bring to the table, and trust in what Christ has done, for those who are in Christ, Jesus assumed all of your responsibility to perfectly obey the law. And in Christ, Jesus assumed your penalty for death for disobeying the law. Jesus doesn't offer us something to do. He offers us and invites us to believe. Namely, to believe in what He has done. That's where the assurance is. You can leave here today knowing you are going to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus if you will stop trusting that you might make it because you're kind of okay. And trust Jesus who was perfect for you. And when you fall flat on your face, trust that He's still perfect for you. But I'm sure none of us struggle with feeling like we've fallen short. No, only every morning I wake up. If you're like me. In conclusion, Peter kindly reminds us 
or reminds Jesus, I should say, hey man, we left everything. The disciples, man, they just, you notice the three things, they say three things in this chapter. First thing they say after Jesus says marriage is high commitment, like, dude, no one should get married. Then the kids come up, they're like, get out of here, Jesus don't want anything to do with you. And this is like, well, Jesus, we left everything, what do we get? Just doofuses, right? Just doofuses. But it's just like us. I, unlike the rich guy, right? He's holding on to his stuff. I gave up everything, and Jesus in his grace doesn't rebuke him, but he gives him an incredible promise. He says, look, salvation demands a radical surrender, but it results in a reward that's stinking radical. We have to view everything that we have in the context of redemption ready to surrender should Jesus ask. And He tells Peter all the things that He could ask of you. He lays them out right there. He says, you must be ready and willing to surrender your home. You must be ready and willing to surrender your lifestyle and your freedom and your reputation and even the love of your family. Your wealth, your success, your comfort, even your job or where you currently live. You must be willing to hold all of that with an open hand should Jesus ask you to surrender it and follow Me. If you are unwilling to do that, you cannot follow God. Why? Because you are putting your hope in something in this world. And Paul reminds us that there's something greater that is deferred waiting for us. So as we surrender, he says, we don't lose heart. Even if I surrender my life, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we will look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal and can ever be taken away. Know this, that there is no standing still with Jesus. You're either going to be walking after Jesus or walking away from Him. If you trust in your own goodness or your own wealth or whatever it is about you, you will die in your sin. And you may die being remembered as a rich man. Maybe as a benevolent man. Perhaps you'll die as being a family man. Maybe a hardworking man or even a religious man. But you will not die a godly man because you have put your trust in something that is not God to save you. We don't trust what we can do for Jesus. We trust in what He has already done for us. We come to the table every Sunday. And you're coming to the table, my fear is it becomes routine to you. This is a reminder and an assurance of your salvation. It's a reminder of what Jesus has done. That you come to the table not claiming that you've been awesome enough or too bad to be loved. You come with the assurance, reminder that Jesus has done it all. You proclaim by your participation that I believe and trust Jesus' obedience is what I, or reason I am saved. Therefore, as we come and we remember, like, oh my gosh, I just had a horrible week. I just, the accuser was going crazy. I am just a broken jerk. And Jesus says, oh yeah, I already knew that. I told you you weren't good. Trust in my goodness. We go, oh yes, praise Jesus. And for those who come and go, I've been pretty awesome this week. Prayed my prayers, read my Bible, helped the old ladies, fed the poor. Jesus comes, remember the cross. That's how bad you are. Don't forget that. 
But don't forget that Jesus says, but I love you, and I'm willing to die for you, and to forgive you. You don't have to leave here. You don't have to leave here unassured that you're not going to heaven. You just must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead. That He lived the life that you were should have lived and died to death that you should have lived in your place. And He rose from the dead to prove that He was who He said He was. And His resurrection in many ways is God's receipt that says, paid in full, just believe. Just believe. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You. I pray honest about who we are. Do not let us be fooled like the rich man was fooled about himself. Lord, we cannot do any good deed to impress You. We cannot do any good deed to get Your approval. We cannot do any good thing to save ourselves. And that is why Your Son came to do everything we were supposed to do in our place. And then He did more than that. He died because of our failure. Thank You for loving us. Thank You for pursuing us. Thank You for forgiving us. Remind us, Lord, that we are not to despair in our brokenness, but to look to the cross. And we are not to boast in our awesomeness, but to look at the cross. And we are to sing, and we are to give whatever You ask us to give. Surrender our entire life to You because Your Son gave His life for us. Thank You, Jesus. Praise You, Jesus. Bless You, Jesus. Come again, Jesus, and save us from this screwed up world. It's in Your name we pray and hope. Amen.